Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and today we have a special episode. We're not talking so much about uh, any certain food book or an author of said book, uh, but we are talking with a very talented writer, and uh, she is on the line right now. Um, where uh, she is on the line from Taiwan, where she is uh, currently a Fulbright Fellow. Um, it's Carissa Chen. Thanks so much for getting on air with us. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. What, ti- what time is it over there for you? Um, it's a little past midnight, so it's a 12 okay. hours in New York. And you're like ahead. You're, so you're in the future right now, so that's pretty cool. I am um, in the future. I, I'm, it's, it's pretty good out here. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know. That's good. You know, you are um, – I don't know if that's a good segue, but, um, you know, you, you're very um, – Let's talk about how cool you are for a second, because, you know, you're a writer, you're from New Jersey, um, you're on a Fulbright Fellow, you're the editor of the Hyphen Reader, um, a roundup of Asian American literature from around the world, you're the co-founding editor at Some Call It Rollin', a new sports literary quarterly, and you've written for a number of... Some Call It Balling. Oh, Sorry. Wait, what did I say? It's okay, whatever. Um, you said some call it rolling. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> and you're you have an MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence College, so um, you know, pretty accomplished uh, young genius there. <laughs> so, um, but uh, of course, so so today we wanted to talk uh, a little bit about um, where the intersection of uh, both food and uh, and, and literature come into play and um, the roles of race around that discussion. Um, last week, we saw mm-hmm. the publication in the New Yorker magazine of a poem by Calvin Trillin, a longtime contributor, a longtime poet, as well as food writer. And uh, the poem was called, Have They Run Out of Provinces Yet? And it was sort of a little chronology of ch- Chinese food as, as he experienced it, I guess. Um, in America, mm-hmm. um, as a as a you know white American guy, um, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people, a lot of people took a lot of offense to this poem in so many different ways. So we want to discuss that, um, Carissa. You've been very vocal about that. Um, yeah, and I love your rap little poem rap battle response <laughs> that you wrote. So if I may just kind of start off the, the, the conversation with, by pulling some of some like key quotes from your poem, would that be all right? Sure. Okay, so you're sure. right. In response to this poem, you're right. You act like Chinese foods here for your own edification. We didn't make this for you, not our stinky tofu, or the soup dumplings that you can't seem to eat without a spoon, or the noodles our mothers make whenever we catch a cold. Are you feeling us yet? We're not yours to control. We didn't make dim sum so you could think it's exotic. Don't give a shit if you think eating chicken feet is totally psychotic. You think kanji is weird? That it's bold to eat Peking duck? Stick to cashew chicken because we don't give a fuck. Yeah, there's good Chinese food from every province. 
but it's not there for you to mock or practice intolerance. We're not a tool for your humor, not some literary prop. We're real people with real stories, not your personal backdrop. Oh, this. That was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) So in a nutshell, I mean, a lot of people seem like they need more explanation on why his poem was offensive. In a nutshell, do you think you can, after this whole week of craziness of trying to respond to that, (laughs) do you have like a a short way of putting that or, or you can go on longer if you want. Um, I mean, I I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, you know, the short of it is that, well, first of all, I just want to address the fact that, um, you know, a lot of people who are defending the poem are saying that, you know, it's satire. He's not making fun of Chinese people. He's, he's actually making fun of like bourgeois foodies. Right. And, um, and, you know, like, when I first read it, it, that was sort of the most generous reading that I, I could give it was like, well, maybe, maybe that's what this is. But I think that even if so, it, it's still problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just from the, from the title, right? It's a, have they run have out of they provinces run out of yet? Provinces there's, yet. There's, right? It's not, it's not about food. It's about people. Like, provinces is about people. It's not about food. You're reducing the entire country to the food. That's already problematic. The fact that he starts off with they as opposed to, you know, a they makes it obvious that there's an outsider, there's a foreigner. Well, I'm reading this poem and I'm thinking, these are all the foods that I eat. Mm-hmm. So am I part of that they then? You know, like right. I'm automatically put into this role of outsiderness. Um, and so, you know, from, from the outset, there's already problems with it because and I think this the way that uh, there was a really great article written by Timothy Yu in the New Republic and he he sort of characterized it as white on white satire mm-hmm. which is I think how a lot of people are reading it which is that this not this is not a poem for me this is no. you know in order for me to find a satire in this I would have to somehow be complicit in in the sort of whitewashing of this food so there's already a problem in, in sort of setting up that dichotomy. I mean, I think there's a lot of levels of, of, of uh, problems in this poem, but the short of it is I think it's starting off with um, sort of reaffirming the status of Chinese people in this country as outsiders. And that's something that, you know, all Asian Americans and immigrants to this country uh, battle with on, you know, a daily basis. Yeah, there's no we, it's they. And and I think it's um in the kind of scramble to defend this poem, the New Yorker really instilled the fact that this humor is directed at a at a non let's say non Chinese audience, right? Because they're saying, mm-hmm. Oh, well it's about mm-hmm. these, you know, food cultish fads, right? Foodies, ha ha, funny. What about it if you're Chinese and a foodie? Like the, I just it just blows my mind that um you know that that wasn't thought through um that that the right. humor is clearly not for Chinese people but it's all about Chinese food you know right uh, yeah it's interesting though I think that, that's really funny because mm-hmm. yeah oh go sorry yeah I I was going to say that I think it's really funny because I'm I'm like a Chinese person and I also consider myself a foodie like I, I love yeah. food well, so most- you know, I'm reading this. I'm like, well, this isn't for me. <laughs> you, know? you know, a great deal of th- there's a lot of them out there. Um, I mean, I have to say that I'm I'm like a, a half Chinese person, so <laughs> I'm like 
but I'm definitely a foodie. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm a little caught in the middle here. And actually, just to kind of like explain, like bring a devil's advocate, if I may. Um, I was chatting mm-hmm. with my brother about this, actually. And he thought that, yes, the, you know, the poem was lighthearted and it was trying to be lighthearted, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the perspective was too narrow. But he said, you know, I, I don't really share in the nostalgia. OK, so one of the other facets of this poem, as we've and you've explored, is that and others is that he seems to have this nostalgia for, like, the simple days of chow mein, right? Which is an Americanized Cantonese mm-hmm. food. Anyway, so my brother said, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't share in that nostalgia because we didn't eat that growing up. But uh, I see, mm-hmm. you know, I don't begrudge the non-Chinese world for having that nostalgia um, or this perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's like one perspective to another. Um, mm-hmm. So how can we, how can people who are not... Um, part of a culture write about that culture can they you know i would never say that a a person who is not part of a culture cannot write about it um mm-hmm. i i don't i don't think that's true um what i do care very much about is being responsible mm-hmm. um if you are going to write about another culture and also i mean i think particularly as a dominant culture and in this case He's a white, white man person. being really mindful of the fact that um, you have a voice that other people may not have. You know that, and this is something else that I think is part of the criticism is that the New Yorker is a very prominent magazine, mm-hmm. and um, you know having having a poet a poem published in the New Yorker is like for some poets it's like their their you know biggest dream, and so. It's interesting because they choose to run this poem, and and you think about the countless number of Chinese or Chinese American poets who might die for that opportunity right. to write about their perspective mm-hmm. of, of, of their you know their culture or not. You know, it could be something completely not related to that. So I think you know having that sort of responsibility means um, making sure that or, or being mindful about like what you are writing about. Um, who you are writing for, and are you representing sort of the the culture that you're speaking for in some ways, mm-hmm. in a way that um, doesn't further marginalize them? And mm-hmm. I think that you know, I don't know. I actually don't know Trillin's work at all. Um, you know, other people. There are a lot of fans out there. There are people who know his work much better than mine. Um, you know, I'm told that he has written extensively about Chinese mm-hmm. food and that he's actually very knowledgeable about it. Yeah. And, you know, I'll take that at its face value because I haven't read his work or the perspective from which he writes about. But but, um, but you're right in that he can. He should, yeah. yeah, he should consider all these facets, uh, all these aspects, but also the why of this poem. And if it's something as um, right. kind of like small as making fun of the food bourgeois, um, you know, is that is that uh, is that big enough to make up for a possible, you know, all the offense that this could cause otherwise? I, I just don't know if it was all right. thought through on anyone's end. Um, right. And, and you're right that the New Yorker, you know, that is a major publication and uh, there's there's plenty of writers who would like to be published there. Um, I, I think that it's really interesting in the last week that we've been talking about this. Nobody is actually defending the quality of the poem. In fact, a lot of people think it's a pretty mm-hmm. bad poem, too. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why was it even published? I don't know. <clears throat> <laughs> 
It's you know, and I, I think part of the defense was he's written poems like this before that like that's his form of satire. Um, I think in you know his defense in the Guardian, he referred to another poem that he had written in a similar tone um, about French food. Right, right. Um, and I actually went back and I and I looked at that poem because uh, you know I wanted I wanted to see how, what he had written. Um, and be able to do sort of that comparison. And I think it's interesting because, um, you know, yeah, it's in the same sort of lighthearted, you know, couplet, not terribly well-written sort what of is, poem. Isn't there, like, a name um, for this form. genre of poem? I for, I'm forgetting it right now. It's called a something. It's a weird word. It is, <laughs> I'm blanking. What the name of that poem was? Or the, the type um, of poem. That poem. I don't know. The title was... Doggerel. Uh, Doggerel. Does that make... Does that ring? It, about oh yeah. Oh yeah. Doggerel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, so what did you think of the French, the poem about French food? So the interesting thing about this poem is, um, you know, it's called "What Happened to Brie and Chablis." Mm-hmm. So already from the beginning, you're, you're talking about food, right? Mm-hmm. He's not talking necessarily about about people, but he's talking about food, and the whole thing is very focused on like food in the restaurant and. And, um, and and I don't think, you know, I think it's a false equivalency to say that, like, these two poems are doing the same thing because it it fails to take into account the different histories that um, that we have in America um, yeah. in, in terms of how we react to French food or French culture versus how we've reacted to Chinese food and Chinese people and Chinese culture in this country. I mean, I think to a certain degree we revere sort of French stuff, like I mean, there's like a snobbery attached to that, right? Um, right. In a way that there's never been with I, Chinese food or Chinese people, for right. that matter. And I mean, so, yeah, those yeah. topics like brie and chablis—that is not like everyday people food. That is, that is, I would say, foodie elite bourgeois food, right? So it's very clear. Right. right. Um, and and in the that's a big difference because I think in and have they run out of provinces yet? The the few foods that he does mention. Um, they're not like the equivalents of Brie and Chablis. He mentioned what Bampo Dofu or something like that's not fancy, um, yeah. and so forth. And counting, <laughs> right? So, right. by calling that like making fun of food bourgeois, you're really just making fun of comfort foods from all over China. <laughs> right. It's and and it's and it's just interesting because it's um, you know I think there's a there's a history of of where we have always seen Chinese food as like cheap food. And so there's a the, this sentimentality for going back to chow mein, which was which is like Americanized Chinese mm-hmm. food. It's not real Chinese food. It's Americanized because you know Chinese people were seen as outsiders and they had to cater to the American palate. Like that's different than than poking fun at you know French food, which is has always been a, a marker, like you said, you know, of, of eliteness. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. I think it's a false equivalency, and so I feel like that uh, that comparison doesn't stand at all. Yeah, I, I have really mixed feelings myself about Americanized Chinese food because, for many, it I realize that it is that gateway to learning more about Chinese food if you're not Chinese, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. the, so it does have that nostalgia. But um, I, I basically like I never ate that, so I don't really understand. But I acknowledge that you know some chinese american writers are kind of doing some wink wink nod nod you know nostalgia uh, riffs on these foods um it's it's very loaded for me but when you think about like italian 
American food, for example. I see a similar thing mm-hmm. going on. People are embracing that, you know, the red sauce, the, you know, the big ziti, and, you know, the stuff that was made mm-hmm. in the new world. Um, I don't know if it's for the same reasons as trying to appease uh, American palates, but, um, mm-hmm. or just was using whatever they had available. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I, I see I see some embrace going around with Americanized Chinese food. So I, I don't know. What do you mm-hmm. feel about that? I mean, I you know I can't speak for other Chinese Americans, um, mm-hmm. but you know for myself, like same as you, like we never grew up eating that. Like to me, that stuff is maybe stuff that I might eat when I have a really bad hangover, and like it's <laughs> a different genre of food to me. Like it's not Chinese. It's, yeah. Like American Chinese food is different. It is different, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And that, so like, I don't. Therein, we have like a different perspective. I, I think that there, there's just, um, there's just a, an inseparable sort of distance um, between yeah. perceiving Chinese food if you didn't grow up with it, um, or if you only had like takeout. Yeah, and and it always like troubled me when I was younger. Um, I think that 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 was what Chinese food was to people because it wasn't my experience growing up. It wasn't, um, to me, it wasn't real. And I, and I knew that like to other, to like my American white friends, like this is what Chinese food was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of cheap. It was a little bit dirty. It might make you sick, you know, it has like MSG in it and like MSG is like a bad Ooh, thing. Yeah. And so like, and I was always very like, I, I, I felt very, sad about it and so you know like with this rise it's sort of like now it's like trying to have ethnic Chinese food I feel very conflicted about it because mm-hmm. you know when I was younger what I wished for was that people would take Chinese food more seriously what I wished for was that people would realize that it's actually like a very you know diverse cuisine and that it is, it's actually like very refined in a lot of ways um, and that like nobody knew that but but I don't you know like to a certain degree like, I I, I it's not that I sympathize with this poem at all, because I don't, mm-hmm. but, like, I understand sort of, like, the poking fun at it in the sense that I feel very conflicted about it. But right. I don't, I think that, again, it's a difference of also the way it's delivered and the things that he says. And I think that his his um, position as a, as a white man makes it very different. It would be very different if I had written that poem, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Like, if I had written that poem and I had said, I mean, I would never have called it "Have They Run Out of Provinces Yet," but like, let's say I was writing a persona poem, and mm-hmm. and okay. I've written that poem. I think that's very different because it's it's coming from a perspective of where I have seen the, the change, right? So, um, I I feel like there's a lot wrapped up in that. Where I'm not, I don't think that I'm saying that you know this sort of thing can't be poked fun at, but I think that it can't be done like. I, I felt like Chinese food could have been any kind of food. You could have been mm-hmm. making fun of the French food. It could be anything. And instead, we were sort of used as a prop, which is very convenient for him, but it failed to take into consideration sort of the loadedness for people like me who grew up being mocked for the kind of food that right. I eat. And, and nobody had a real understanding of it. I think one of the most interesting things in the last actually two weeks, because um uh, a week and a half ago, I, I um, wrote a piece in Civil Eats wrapping up the conversations on the sporkful about the, the questions surrounding cultural appropriation in food. And um, mm-hmm. I heard a great number of people that just 
have hang-ups around the, the notion of cultural appropriation, totally dismiss it. In the last week mm-hmm. after this Calvin Schrillen poem, I know that you and many other people have been struggling with that kind of response as well. And I just want to mention, mm-hmm. um, I was really surprised to see um, people speaking out. Um, so on Twitter, for example, Kurt Anderson, um, host of Studio 360 on WNYC, said, this quote-unquote controversy over Trillin's comic poem about waves of Chinese food trendiness is such utter P- uh, PC self-parody. And then Joyce Carol Oates, um, one, of, one of like the greatest, I mean, you know, most prolific and very prestigious writers in our day in America, said, um, you know, spoke out in Trillin's defense, and uh, what did she say? She made she came up with a little response poem of her own, and <laughs> oh my god, I just lost it. Oh, she said, misun- yeah, I read it. Okay, yeah. she said, misunderstood for writing funnily of food. Dear Cravelin Trillin has been grilled. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, so a lot of people are um, speaking out in defense. Um, what what have you heard? I mean, and what what strikes you most about the sort of backlash to the backlash of this poem? You know, I, it's not surprising to me. I think that any time um, marginalized people complain about something, you know, or like it's you know point out on some racism or whatever it is, um, there's usually backlash that we're being too sensitive, um, that we misunderstood something, that we shouldn't find things offensive. And um, so it's, you know, it's not surprising to me that there are people saying this. It, it saddens me greatly because I think the reaction is to dismiss rather to listen. Um, and right. And I think that there's the it's a very you know it's a very defensive sort of it stance defensive. where for some reason they feel the need to defend Trillin's you know work at all costs and you know I don't think that anybody is necessarily above criticism I, you know I don't think we're saying that he's like a, right. a bad person <laughs> right like this poem is just it doesn't work mm-hmm. um, and I think actually the criti- for a lot of people that I've talked to their criticism is actually mostly even more leveled at the New Yorker as an institution rather than, you know, Trillin himself, mm-hmm. because there was a failure for the editorial team to sort of be like, mm, maybe this isn't such a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't... It Every- bothers me a lot um, that that the reaction to somebody being upset, that an entire group finding something deeply unsettling to them um, is met with people telling us that actually, like, we're wrong. We're wrong. Because mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't think that you can tell me that, you, you know, you don't know what the experience right. of being an Asian American in this country is. So how can you tell me that I'm wrong for feeling this way? It's kind of like um, an infantile, like, you. he said, she said, I think you misunderstood. I think right. you misunderstood. Like, a little back and forth right. um, that doesn't seem very productive. Um, but anyway, if we can talk about like productive, hopefully, you know, you know, positive steps or solutions, um, what would you think needs to, we need to do from maybe a media publishing, like what should the New Yorker now do in reaction? Cause they haven't really, 
um, spoken at length about this, except for like that one little kind of uh, publicist response about it being uh, making fun of the food elite or snobbery. Um, what would you think? Mm-hmm. What would you like to happen? I mean, what I would actually really like is for the um, editorial team of The New Yorker and for, you know, other news outlets and publications to really listen to what our concerns are. And um, and I would like an apology from The New Yorker, um, you know, and I don't want one of those like, oh, we're sorry this hurt you. <laughs> you didn't mean for it to hurt you. Like, I, well, I, I hate those apologies. I think like, that I, would be nice, no? <laughs> like, I want one of those, like, what? I kind of think that would be nice. Don't you? Like, we're sorry. I mean, I, I, I think, like, I mean, you get a lot of, like, well, we're sorry that you feel that way sort of apologies that aren't really, like, like them taking responsibility for the situation. And I think what I would actually really like is for them to hear the concerns and to actually come to an understanding of why this, this yeah. um, bothers the people that it bothers. Um, you know, I was I was raised by my mom that a, that a proper apology isn't just I'm sorry, but it's you know, I'm sorry. Um, what can I do to make it better? Right. This is, and you know, and I. Or I'm sorry. This, like, this uh, did not represent our standards, actually, and we stand corrected, or I don't know, something like that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And I, you know, I'd like it for it to be an ongoing conversation, also, because I think this is an evolving, an evolving thing. Like, you know, I get it. It's progress is hard, and we're all evolving, and like nobody is without mistakes nobody is without a moment where they don't you know you know do something where they might not you know realize that they're doing something that might offend somebody Mm -hmm. but i feel like progress is being open to listening to that conversation and trying to evolve from that and like i you know i don't think that anyone is saying that you know the new yorker is just right you know it's the way it is going to be at least i'm not you know and i think Mm -hmm. that there's an opportunity here now to listen and to try to understand that like this is where we're coming from and you know it's valid Mm -hmm. and we would like for you to listen to it so that next time this doesn't happen again um and i hope that that would that other people are open to that as well i hope so too and you know what you know what i would also like to see happen is um somebody Maybe the New Yorker publishing more poems by Carissa Chen. <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> Just in general, you know. Um, well, I guess that's about all the time we have for today. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for thanks for sharing these thoughts. I'm sure you're, you're tired of it by now, but um, it's really good to, you know, hopefully explore this for a, a good cause. So. Really, really appreciate yeah. it, Krista. Thank you so much. Thanks so no, much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. So Absolutely. Um, well, uh, good night, I guess, in uh, Taiwan there. <laughs> and um, have a great, <laughs> yeah, have a great time on your Fulbright, and we can't, hear, we can't wait to read more from you. Um, thanks, Thank everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Krista. Thanks, everyone, at Heritage Radio. Uh, see you next week on our regular program. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Have you listened to A Taste of the Past? It's a show devoted to connecting our current food world with its storied past. Host and culinary historian Linda Palaccio welcomes chefs, scientists, authors, scholars, and revolutionaries into the studio to discuss food culture and history from around the globe. Have you seen the culture of food change over the past 25, 30 years? It's been incredible. Linda covers content ranging from the history of black chefs in the White House to behavioral psychology and the evolution of Italian food in America. You can listen to A Taste of the Past anytime on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or on iTunes and Stitcher.